seems especially fitting on a day when we celebrate in the Christian year, it's called Trinity Sunday. The Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, has been one of the most nettlesome problems that the church has had to try to think its way through over 2,000 years. We've never done an entirely satisfactory job with it, which is why people keep fighting about it. But one of the things that, the words that it is used to describe uh, the relationship of the Trinity in Greek is called perichoresis, which means uh, those who dance together. And that the picture of the Godhead is the three who dance together in community. And it speaks to us about the about the nature, not only of who God is, but of who we are as God's people, those who do this sort of complicated dance in community, recognizing that each of us is essential, uh, a treasured part uh, of the family. A reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah in the year that I saw the Lord standing on the throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him, each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of God's glory. And the pivots on the threshold shook at the voices of those who called, and the house filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, I'm lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. And the seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. And God said, go and say to this people, keep listening, but do not comprehend. Keep looking, but do not understand. Make the mind of this people dull and stop their ears and shut their eyes so that they may not look with their eyes and listen with their ears and comprehend with their minds and turn and be healed. And then I said, how long, O Lord? And God said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is utterly desolate, 
until the Lord sends everyone far away. And vast is the emptiness in the midst of the land. Even if a tenth part remain in it, it will be burned again. Like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains standing when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever, the word of the Lord. Remember when my two oldest kids, Samuel and Mary, were young, as little kids? We used to observe quiet time after lunch every day. They'd both stop taking naps, but Susan and I still needed them to take naps, like desperately. So we'd send them to their rooms for an hour. They didn't have to sleep, but they needed to stay upstairs in their rooms. It's quiet time. It may come as something of a surprise to you, but they didn't much like this ritual. In fact, as adults, they still complain about the grave injustices visited upon them as children for an hour or so a day. We treasured that time, but alas, they did not. As you might imagine, because they didn't like the whole concept of quiet time, the kids got up to all kinds of shenanigans, a lot of sneaking around. So eventually we just let them play together. As long as they just kept it quiet, this adjustment to the Quiet time program, it worked pretty well most of the time. Every once in a while, they'd get into some kind of argument, which, of course, young kids are almost always eventually doing at some point when they play together for an extended period of time. But it usually happened after the fourth or fifth time that they called downstairs, is quiet time over yet? No, quit asking. We'll let you know. The frustration of having to read a book or a play, uh, play a game must have seemed unbearable to them sometimes. So they'd argue and bicker until one of us told them, just knock it off. But one time I remember they got into it about something. I really don't recall the source of the dispute. But I remember Mary was crying and I asked what the problem was and they recounted some tale of woe, grievance, and loud recrimination. And I told Samuel to tell his sister that he was sorry, which he promptly did. But whatever had happened was so heinous in Mary's eyes that she stomped her foot and she said, I don't want your sorries. Did you ever feel that way? Something happens that feels bad enough that I'm sorry, just doesn't quite square things. I mean, apologies are nice, they're necessary, but words and empty gestures, sometimes it's not enough. And when things are bad, you need something more than I'm sorry to restore relationship. And we're experiencing something like that right now on a national level. I mean, I, I don't know if you've heard about this or not, but it seems that we had a little, um, little kerfuffle 
in the Capitol on January 6th? That anybody, you, you've heard of that? Okay. This is kind of a minor disagreement over who should rightly be president of the United States. Anyway, thousands of the former president's supporters showed up at the U.S. Capitol building attempting to stop the vote to certify the presidential election. Hundreds of people were injured. Five people eventually died. It was a, it was a thing. But I don't know if you've heard about it. But. Anyway, if you happened to be tuned in at the time, or if you watched the coverage that ensued in the aftermath, I mean, you, you, you know how scary it was. People armed with tasers and blunt objects forced their way into the Capitol building, looking to assassinate the vice president, the speaker of the house. Some of the insurrectionists weren't that choosy. They, they were looking for anybody that they thought might stand in the way of the former president retaining office. It was, of course, I think we can say uh, as an observation, an attempted coup. I mean, the whole thing was, was terrifying. Now, the immediate reaction was swift and forceful condemnation of the insurrectionists by, by both parties. I mean, across the political spectrum, lawmakers were scared and angry about such unprecedented attempts to seize power. We'd always told ourselves that this is the kind of thing that happens in countries that are much less sophisticated and committed to democracy than the United States of America. I mean, and for, for 24 hours or so, maybe 48 hours, there was, there was a broad consensus among politicians that the insurrectionists had gone too far. That, that something uh, had to be done to punish the wrongdoers, save our democracy. And people were horrified that such a flagrant insurgency could happen in this country. But strangely, as time has passed, more and more people who've aligned themselves with the insurrectionists and the former president, they might want to move on. There's no point dwelling on the past. <laughs> I mean, there's no good uh, end that is served by holding accountable those who were somehow complicit and would have been political beneficiaries of such a coup. Right? You've heard that? Something like that? And I said, well, what? What? what's the problem with that? I mean, we said it was bad. We said we were sorry it happened. Can't we all just get along? I mean, we should be looking forwards, not backwards. I mean, January, that's ancient history. And what is the response of most, uh, the majority of Americans, anyway? We don't want your sorries. We want accountability. We don't, we don't want to see this happen again. And sometimes sorry's not enough. I mean, that's the point that uh, black people have been making for years, right? I mean, the country from the very beginning, especially its white citizens, ha has built vast wealth on the backs of black people. Additionally, as a country, we've set up systems that continue to disadvantage them disproportionately. A justice system that harasses and incarcerates them, an insurance industry that often redlines them and continues to cost them more money for the same things their white neighbors enjoy. A health system where they experience disproportionately bad outcomes. A school system that often funds black schools at abysmally lower rates than white ones, and the list goes on and on, long and seemingly unchangeable. 
So when, when, when black people hear apologies for slavery, for Jim Crow, and for the enduring legacies of each, many people want to know if we're actually sorry enough to, you, you know, make things right. Some kind of recompense for the centuries of being systematically oppressed. And it's called reparations. It's, just, it's an attempt to right a grievous wrong in actual legislative and financial ways. You've put us so often and so far behind the eight ball that apologies aren't enough to set things right. Thank you, but we, we need more than your sorries. And of course, you can hear the cries of panic from those afraid of what having to take responsibility for the plight of their neighbors might mean for them, the social and economic impact it might have on a life that they take pretty much for granted. <laughs> Come on now, I mean, all that stuff that happened way in the past. I mean, we weren't even, some of us weren't even born. Why, why, why should we be responsible for things that we didn't have any part in? I mean, obviously we're sorry about what black people have suffered, but we don't see why it should cost us anything. Why can't they just move past this? But in our hearts, I think we know. There are some wounds that are so deep, some, some acts that are so painful, some relationships that are so damaged that quick apologies aren't enough to fix what's broken. What's, what's needed is action and accountability, repentance and restitution, a, a genuine attempt to fix what's wrong. In our text this morning, we find Isaiah standing in God's presence. Well, I'm mean, standing, seems a bit generous. Maybe quivering in God's presence is a better way to describe it. Passages like the calling of Isaiah put the lie to the popular notion that God's presence always brings comfort, always makes us feel warm and pleasant, safe. Being visited by God can be a harrowing experience. At any rate, <clears throat> Isaiah finds himself called by God to go to the people and say these really interesting words. Keep listening, but do not comprehend. Keep looking, but do not understand. Make the mind of this people dull and stop their ears and shut their eyes so that they may not look with their eyes and listen with their ears and comprehend with their minds and then turn and be healed. Now, I mean, I don't know about you, but, but that feels a bit harsh. God wants the people of Israel to remain hard-hearted? Really? I mean, yikes. What do we do with that? In fact, Isaiah seems to feel the same way. Incredulous, he says by way of response, Well, how long, O Lord? And God says, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is utterly desolate, until the Lord stands 
and sends everyone far away, and vast is the emptiness in the midst of the land. And even if a tenth part remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stumps remain standing when it is felled. I mean, it, it's, it's pretty hard to know what to say to that, isn't it? I mean, we're, we're not used to a God who's so peevish. I mean, the God that we're used to is, is forgiving, expansive, loving, ready to let bygones be bygones, desiring to move forward and leave the past in the past. But the God in our text is pretty obviously angry, affronted, ready to let people die, just to satisfy some need for what sounds like vengeance. But how, how do we square that with the God who says some chapters later in the book of Isaiah, for the Lord will comfort Zion. God will comfort all her waste places and will make her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found there, thanksgiving in the voice of song. How do we make those two work together? Now, one of the techniques used in the Bible, heck, one of the techniques that we still use to narrate our own lives, is a process of sort of looking back over the things that have happened in the past and, and, and finding meaning and purpose there that we couldn't really see while we were living through it. Is that, does that make sense to you? And so we often narrate the story of our lives sort of retrospectively as if what happened was part of an intentional plan all along. That's how we read our histories. I mean, think, think about the, <clears throat> the, the curse in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve ate off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All the way back in the beginning. And God said to Eve and then to Adam, I will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. And yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And to the man he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Then cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And apparently cicadas. And you shall eat of the plants and of the field. And by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. You are dust and to dust you shall return. Now, historically, this passage has been read as a curse on Adam and Eve, uh, a, a revelation of God's anger through God's intended punishment of those who've betrayed God. In other words, this is going to happen because you've done something to make me mad. So now I'm going to make you suffer with these horrible things that I'm going to do to you. 
but it can just as easily and just as faithfully be read as a retrospective chronicle of what life is like after their disobedience. That is to say, it can be read as a backward-looking description of life after Adam and Eve's fall, as opposed to a prescription for their suffering in the future. In other words, I didn't want it this way, but this is what life is going to look like, the consequences of the decisions you've made and the acts you've committed. Not, I'm going to inflict pain on you because you've done something that makes me angry and I need to let off some steam in some way. You see the difference between the two. A description or a prescription. Instead of viewing God as desiring the destruction of Israel, as our text seems to suggest, Isaiah, after the fall of both the northern and the southern kingdoms to the Assyrians and the Babylonians, is, I think, engaging in just this sort of retrospective meaning-making. Not that, 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 that God in our passage is chomping at the bit to lay waste to the cities, making the land utterly desolate, but that because of Israel's failure to live faithfully, this sort of catastrophe is what has already happened. And the best way to make sense of it is to look back over it and see it as a part of some greater plan. But the question that comes up is, regardless of whether you see this as backward-looking or forward-looking, what exactly is the sin for which Israel must be punished? Or perhaps better, what is the sin for which Israel must be held accountable? Well, among other things, in the chapter right before our text this morning, Isaiah tells us, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the people of Judah are God's pleasant planting. God expected justice, but saw bloodshed. Righteousness, but heard a cry. Ah, you who join house to house, who add field to field, until there's room for no one but you, and you are left to live alone in the midst of the land. In other words, Israel and Judah, the, the, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, they've exploited and oppressed the poor. They've stolen land that wasn't their own, foreclosed on debts to people who couldn't pay back, taking their inheritance making themselves rich with it. And looking back over the destruction of both kingdoms, Isaiah sees the destruction as the inevitable outcome for people who've abandoned God's call to justice, who've refused to change their ways. But, but, but the question that's raised by the text is, why is an account of all the devastation and ruin as a part of God's plan necessary? I mean, why is that in there? I mean, couldn't, couldn't God have just given them a stern talking to? Written a strongly worded Yelp review? Something, but I mean, why all the wreckage and devastation? 
Because, I mean, you know, what if they're, you know, really, really sorry? As Walter Brueggemann points out, in this passage, there are no ready turnings. The healings are not readily available, and the turnings are too demanding. There's no easy gospel, no cheap grace, no good word that gives assurances to those who drop by hoping for a quick and comfortable deal. (laughs) To be sure, there's comfort at the end of the oracle, but it is only late, a seeming afterthought. It is a small, thin comfort of a holy seed from this stump. But first, the stump. The stump of failure and termination rooted in numbness and hard-heartedness. The book of Isaiah knows the stump of 587 B.C. when all was lost, when the Babylonians came and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. The gospel writers know the Friday stump of crucifixion. The prophetic drama does not permit a rush to post-exile, even as the gospel does not permit a rush past Friday to arrive too early and too easily at Sunday. I mean, sometimes all the sorries in the world aren't enough. Sometimes you need more than words and good intentions to make things right. Sometimes everything needs to be stripped to the metal and rebuilt. Because there aren't any easy fixes. There's no cheap grace, no chance to duck responsibility with a casual nod of recognition at the wrongs that have been committed. When we've stood by and watched as injustice has reigned and the powerful have oppressed the weak and the vulnerable, there aren't enough heartfelt apologies to put the world right again. See, we live in a world where the deck has been historically and consistently stacked against those who haven't had the power to protect themselves and their children. Racism, huge disparities in wealth and opportunity, xenophobia, misogyny, vast repositories of prejudice against LGBTQ people and the disabled. I mean, these are wrongs that can't be fixed with well-intentioned expressions of regret. Sometimes when things are bad enough, historically entrenched enough, Systems need to be dismantled and rebuilt. Now, Jesus called such a dismantling and rebuilding the reign of God. According to Isaiah and according to the Gospels, when sorry isn't enough to fix the old world, we need a new world. It may not be especially pleasant for those of us used to living at the top of the food chain, but If Isaiah and Jesus are right, a world turned upside down, a world where the first come out last and the last finally get ushered to the front of the line is exactly what we need. First the stump. Only then can the sprout shoot forth. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, 
Please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.